Isn't it amazing how some sins remain fixed in our memories and others do not? And some of them are small and some of them are big. Perhaps it is the embarrassment or humiliation we experienced when we were discovered or caught or even disciplined that sears the memory into the banks of our minds. Perhaps it is a consequence of our sin that we carry even to this very day that reminds us continually of our failure and guilt. Like Adam and Eve's experience after the first sin, the shame that we feel for our sin can become a powerful force, influencing a sense of of identity, as if that is the measure of who we really are. And we'll never be anything more than that. We'll never be anything different from that. Sometimes it can actually shape the course of life that we choose, the particular paths that we're willing to travel, other paths that we're not willing to. Dan Allender, who is uh, an author and teacher, writes of shame, the experience of shame sends a shudder so deep through the soul that most human beings would rather despair, disappear, lie, or give up all that feels dear to escape the cataclysm. That's a powerful word to describe shame, but it's accurate, isn't it? He goes on to write, it is no small matter that the first story after the rebellion of Adam and Eve is about their frenzy to do whatever was necessary to escape exposure. Adam and Eve had to know that hiding from an infinite, all-knowing God was impossible. But shame makes a person mad, if not insane, and is the impetus for some of the most harmful acts against other human beings. Adam and Eve were willing to turn against one another in a heartbeat to blame each other and God in order to diminish the horror of exposure. And then he writes these words, loyalty freezes in the ice of shame. That creates a powerful image for us. And if some of us were honest this morning, we would have to say, my soul is... It may be completely frozen because of the shame I feel over my sin. I suspect that shame is part of what was loaded into Paul's soul as he cried at the end of Romans 7 as we were there just last week. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And remember how he had talked, and we'll go back and review this in just a moment, but he had, he had described It almost seems to be a spiritual schizophrenia. The things I want to do, I don't do those sometimes. And the things I don't want to do, that's exactly what I do. And that is shameful and humiliating to us, especially when you say, God has done all this for me. I know better. I know his law. There really is a part of my heart, as as Paul said, I delight in the law in my inner man. Like, there's part of me that says, oh, I want nothing more than to obey you and please you, God. But there are days I wake up and it's like, nope, not today. Who will deliver us from our shame? Who will deliver us from the painful guilt and sense of perpetual condemnation that some of us live under? Who will deliver us from the weight of this load that for some is actually unbearable? 
Some of you read those words on the screen just a moment ago and said, I'd like to sing that. Our, our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. I'd like to sing that in faith, but right now it feels like my sins are more and that there is a quantity of mercy insufficient for that. Well, here in chapter 8 of Romans, as we'll read in just a moment, and I use the words of J.I. Packer to, to, to describe this next portion, Paul balances what the law has told Christians about themselves. And, and what does the law tell us? It says things like this, you have failed, you are weak, you are guilty. All that's accurate, isn't it? I mean, we've made our way through the first seven chapters of Romans and every mouth is shut before God. We're all accountable before him. And when he says there's none righteous, no, not one, every one of us is included in that. That's the force of the law. But thanks be to God, that's not where he leaves us, is it? Because the gospel says something different to us. And this is what Packer is highlighting. What the gospel tells us about ourselves is that whereas we personally have failed and are weak and are guilty, but we are actually loved, aren't we? And not just love to a, a small degree, we're actually loved more than we could possibly imagine. And we have been forgiven fully, everything, complete forgiveness offered by God. And finally, as we've made our way through Romans, God's word to us is you are also justified freely and eternally. That legal declaration over sinners that you are righteous for Christ's sake is a non-negotiable declaration. I mean, these are marvels for us. And Packer touches on these. He goes on to say, and Paul's purpose in this gospel that we're studying is to ensure that the gospel, rather than the law, has the last word in the reader's conscience and determines their final attitudes towards God, toward themselves, and toward life. And I love that. And I wonder this morning if you can say the gospel actually speaks the final word in my conscience this morning. Because, you know, if you actually struggle with that past guilt and shame and, and it just doesn't seem to turn loose of you or you can't turn loose of it, then there's actually the demonstration it's not God's gospel word that has spoken the final declaration in your conscience yet. But maybe this would be the morning. All of us have voices in our heads, don't we? And our hearts. And some of them are actual people who've said very hurtful things that we've never been able to forget. Some of those voices are our own voices trying to work through the shame and frustration and so that's a great question for us to ask this morning as we begin. Does the good news from God have the last word in my conscience this morning, or is there another voice? Now, let's go to the Word of God. And if your Bible is not yet open to Romans 8, go ahead and go there. If you're using one of our Bibles uh, in the seat rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 944. And I actually want to read verses 1 through 11, but we're going to go back and focus on verses 1 through 4 in our time this morning. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Pray with me, please. Our God and Father, this, your word, your living, abiding, eternal, unchangeable word has life in it for us today. And we seek you as our good and gracious king and ask for your blessing, the blessing of illumination that we may first understand this truth, the blessing of strength and empowerment that we may respond in obedience and service with this truth. And we ask that you would give us the grace of, of Christ's humility, that as we receive it and as we serve you with it, uh, we may honor your great name. And may it be said of us, as he said of himself, I always do the will of him who sent me. Oh, change us, transform us, make us to be what we could never hope to be in our own strength. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. What a mighty word this is, that God would stand over sinners like us who actually deserve condemnation and say, there is no condemnation anymore. The order of Paul's words, which the English can't reflect it. I mean, those of you who've studied foreign languages understand that there, there's never a one word for one word translation. There, there's context and there's meaning and understanding and intent. And, and so Greek does operate differently than English does. Um, but sometimes, whereas in English we would underline words or put words in bold or maybe put an exclamation mark at the end of a sentence or all kinds of things like that. In Greek, the, uh, a writer like Paul will often put words in a certain order so that you know, like, this is a really big deal. And do you know that the first word in this sentence that we read in English, and legitimately so, there is therefore now no condemnation, but the first word is no. And it's a word that in other places and even here could mean not even one. Not the least. Now, again, in English that would read really artificially, if not just oddly. Not the least, therefore now, condemnation. You'd say, what? wait a second, back up, I think I misunderstood you. Yes, you did. In English, But what Paul leads with here is this powerful word, no. And the word therefore indicates that this is a consequence, a, a present consequence of something. Now, it's interesting if you pull out commentaries and study it, some would say, oh, it has you know, direct connection to the end of chapter 7, and others say, no, it's, it's chapters 1 through 7. 
And in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter a ton because Paul is connecting it to what he's said, whether it's just the, the first, uh, first couple of verses preceding this or the, or the first seven chapters of this book, but we connect it back to what God has already begun to do. And the question we would ask this morning is, what is the consequence of God's justification of sinners? Because that's really been the biggest point uh, to uh, his letter at this juncture. And here it is. There is no condemnation. There's not one condemnation. There's not the least condemnation remaining for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And condemnation is more than just a little, you know, scowl or, you know, a, a furrowed brow where God looks over, you know, the wall of heaven and says, oh, you people, you did it again. No, this is a legal judgment of condemnation uh, that leads to a, not only a verdict of guilt, but a punishment that must be meted out. And we've covered this before, so I won't belabor this, but don't lose the force of what God himself is saying through his servant Paul. There's no remaining judgment of condemnation hanging over the heads and hearts of my people now. There's not even one word of it. Now we pause and say, how can this be? In particular, because we've seen the catastrophic consequence of just one man's sin in 518, where he said, referring to Adam, one trespass led to the condemnation of all. And, and what we wrestle with is not so much like a different meaning to the scriptures than what we've read, but our experience. That's where most of us get hung up. And, and we look at our sin and God's holiness and the standard of law and, and sometimes even the repetition of our sin and we begin to say, how can there not be condemnation for us? How can, not, how can God not be angry with me this morning? How can he not turn his back upon me? Surely my many trespasses and sins mean some kind of condemnation for me. But here's the definitive word. There is no condemnation remaining. Not the least. And I love how, as you set your heart upon this, this word of God that begins to take its prime position in the conscience of a guilty soul uh, has three particular impacts on us. And first of all, it is God's definitive word that speaks to our past guilt. The shame of those painful memories of our sin that for some of us cry out daily, cry out against us, and, and many of us are sure that the Lord will forever frown upon us. This is the word that addresses that past guilt. And sometimes you feel like there, it's not just one or two voices. Sometimes it feels like a cacophony of voices in your soul saying, guilty, failure, you're weak, God can never love you. You're such a disappointment. I mean, that list goes on and on, and those voices rage sometimes. But over that cacophony of voices in our souls is God's mighty no condemnation. Not the least. This word speaks to our past guilt. I think it also speaks to our present frustrations. And I'm going back to chapter 7 where, where Paul said, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do, a wretched man that I am. And here is a word that not only consoles us in the midst of that frustration, but also begins to powerfully motivate us. When you know that your, your accounts are settled with God and that he's not holding some kind of, of uh, of condemnation or judgmental sentence over your head where you're going to get it if you don't shape up, 
Oh, it, it's liberating. It frees you. And some of you say, but Lord, I, I, I've sinned so repeatedly in the same way, and it, and it is rebellion when it comes right down to it. I, I just don't want to obey you. How could there not be condemnation? He says, not in the least. And we won't get there today, really, but I'm going to go ahead and touch on it. At the end of this chapter, it also speaks to future glory, and it begins to build a powerful hope that when we arrive in the presence of God, though the, the, the quality of our works will be evaluated. Paul talks about that in his letter to the Corinthians. But, but that's different from judgment. The child of God does not need to fear being judged in this particular way, let alone condemned in the great day of Christ's appearing. So this speaks to future glory. It really is going to happen. At the end of the chapter, Paul will write, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Could you yourself bring a charge against yourself? Could the devil make a charge stick? You think of your worst enemy. And the answer is no. And it's tied back to this great reality. So that pushes us into the second verse and the second portion here, and and it begins to explain a little more as to why. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And now he's speaking of a full liberation. So no condemnation in front of you, and there's a full liberation that's opening up before you. Now, some of this we've already addressed in chapter 6 and 7, where we know that the relationship we once had with sin has been broken. And Paul used an analogy of a, a spouse who dies, and the death actually ends the marriage obligations and responsibilities, and the wife, in that particular case, is free to remarry. And then Paul said in chapter 7, verse 4, there's a similar thing that's happened in order that you, who were once slaves to sin, might now belong to God. And that belonging is a very intimate, uh, personal term. And you think of the relationship that God is bringing you into now. Well, here's another component of it. So now the law of the spirit of life, and as he refers to this, uh, think, first of all, it's not mosaic law. It's not Ten Commandments kind of law. It's a principle. And this stands in opposition to the principle of law of sin and death. That's the law we're all too familiar with. We felt the weight. We felt the force. We felt the enslavement of that. We felt the fear even that results from being under that law of sin saying this is going to lead to my death and destruction. But there's a new law that begins to operate, a new principle, if you will, and it's the law of the spirit of life. Now remember, putting it in its immediate context, part of what Paul is doing is answering his own question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Because sometimes even, even our, our present walk of faith feels like it's more death and destruction and chaos and failure than anything else. And he's coming in and saying, oh, no, no, no. There's the law of the spirit of life. And there's a life opening up for you right now that, that you really can't fully understand. But you need to. You need to work hard at it. Because God is doing a mighty work. So this, this law or this principle is an opposing principle to the law of of sin and death, but it's also a superior principle, if you will, a superior law that begins to work in the life of the believer, and it's actually nothing less than God the Spirit himself. We sang just a moment ago of that great day when we will worship the three in one, and you know they're all involved in your salvation, presently involved, and here's one of those sweet and wonderful indicator. So the, the full liberation 
is being brought about by this new principle, and it is the spirit of life. Now look at the the next phrase, has set you free in Christ Jesus. These are realities. Our experience doesn't match it. We don't feel like this is true sometimes, but, but God is laying down his unchangeable truth saying, no, this really is so. Set you free, liberated you from the, the, first of all, the, the punishment that your sin deserves, free from that. Um, not yet liberated from the full presence of sin, that'll be a great day, but that's heaven, that's future. But he really is liberating us from the power of sin. That's why he's been saying, you're no longer slaves to sin. So there is a, there's a real aspect, we've talked about this over the last several weeks, right? Where you don't have to say yes to your sins. I know many times we do, many times we feel like we have no other choice at the moment, but we really do. Sin's power has been broken and is being broken. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit, but this powerful law of the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer is the game changer. Paul is about to explain specifically what God did in Christ for this liberation to happen, and then he's gonna begin to open the door, and this will be the next several weeks where we just need to immerse our hearts in this great truth that he's called us into the life of the Spirit, the life of freedom. Look at verse two with me again. We'll get a running start into verse three. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What could, what could the law not accomplish? It couldn't break the power of sin in your life. Remember last week how we walked through several uh, particular points where Paul said, you know, sin actually set up a base of operation in the law to to lead you into more sin. Sin actually led to uh, death, killing us. I mean, it's an unbelievable distortion of the purpose of the law, but it's the reality. That's what happens with people like us who fall into sin. I was thinking this morning, I didn't come up 118th, but um, I suspect it's still there because it's been there for many weeks, but you know, they got that little radar system set up there, and as you come up the road, um, and it, it always flashes at me, um, and you know what that means, because the speed limit there is 35, but it doesn't feel like 35 is the right speed. You know, traffic moves up and down there, right? It feels like 40 or 45 would be better, and some of you would say, push it up, you know, if, if 40 or 45 is better, 50 or 55 is best, right? So the law, though, is 35, and we all know that, at least those of us who drive in this neighborhood. I mean, we know that up here, but there's something else in us that, that says, uh, break the law. That's not actually what's going on in your head. You're just like, you, you actually think you are smarter, uh, higher authority, no more, whatever it is, but if we're all honest, we think we're above that law. 40 is better, so I'll go 40. The, knowing that law doesn't actually have the power to change you inside. There needs to be another uh, authority, a superior authority to that. Some of you, it goes all the way back to your mom. Like, you know, bless her heart, bless her memory, may she rest in peace, but that, she's a voice in your head right now, and you're like, I, I cannot break the law. My mom would be so disappointed in me. Well, there's kind of a similar thing going on, and the law even, even our best days of law-keeping won't break the power of sin within or without. 
And so Paul is actually saying something that is, that is quite marvelous, that God broke the power of sin. Now what he says next is not new to us. We've covered this before, but, but we dare not blow right by this. What did he do? Well, first he sent his own son, not just any son. He actually has only one son of this kind. That's Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity entered the world by God's design on purpose. And look at this, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Very briefly, notice how Paul guards the sinlessness of Christ. In the likeness of sinful flesh is not the same as saying in sinful flesh. Because then we might have wondered, well, did Jesus actually sin like you and I do? And the answer is emphatically no. He never sinned. He's the sinless one. But he did come in real humanity. So the likeness of sinful flesh, and then Paul says, and for sin. And, and there's a little bit of debate as to it was, the, was the specific Old Testament sacrificial system in view here, and I think there's good reason for that, but here's what I'm sure of. He was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with your sin and mine. He was the sacrifice. There's, there's no debate about that whatsoever. But as he came... By the Father's appointment in full humanity, he dealt with our sin in this particular way. Look at the next phrase. He condemned sin in flesh. Isn't that beautiful? For those who fear their own condemnation, it's not just that God has lifted a sentence off of us or suspended a sentence, if you will, kind of like swept the bad stuff under the rug and said, we won't talk about this anymore. No, he actually let the full weight of condemnation fall upon his one-of-a-kind son. And again, think about this, because God is just. If he punishes Jesus for it all, he can't and won't punish others for it. That's you and me. So there's no condemnation for you and me because the condemnation fell on him. You say, but what about the really bad stuff I've already done today? It's covered. And knowing me, there's bad stuff coming tomorrow. Yeah, but it's covered. One author writes, just as the law of sin produces death, so also the law or ruling factor of the spirit of life brings about life. It does this through Christ Jesus. That is, on the basis of the merit of his atonement, and here's the second part, and by means of the vitalizing power of union with him. That's a good word, vitalizing. We don't use that very often, do we? The old Puritan word is vivifying. Those are words that means it just brings us to life where there was sin and death. The death of Christ is the medicine that we are in need of. And I was thinking just a couple of days ago as I was reviewing this, here we are at the foot of the cross again. Some of you who are new to historic Christianity might say, you know, it's just odd to me that you sing about the cross. I mean, behind that screen, we got a wooden cross on, on the wall outside of the church, the front wall, there's a cross. Like some of you wear crosses around your neck as you know, a piece of jewelry. Like what's this big deal about the cross? It's where Jesus died and we came to life. It's where condemnation was removed. Wrath was spent. Sins paid for. Freedom really came. He condemned sin in the flesh. How much of our sin was condemned? Aren't you glad it's not 
just 99.9%? All of it. And that includes every memory that you wrestle with in that dark corner of shame in your soul. Jesus has been condemned for it. Release it to him. Every recollection that presses your soul into, into despair, every accusation that rises out of your past, whether it's your own voice accusing you or Satan himself or somebody in between, all of that is silenced because God gave his son to that condemnation. And Matt read a portion of 2 Corinthians 5 earlier. I love those words in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that's why God the Father can stand over your broken heart, your scarred soul today, and say in all sincerity and compassion, in genuine love and transforming power, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. I love the words of Brian Chappell Spiritual health never comes from belittling sin, but from a willingness to bathe its filthy entirety in the compassion of God. Our hearts will not be whole, nor will our lives be more holy if every room and dark corner in them does not echo the promise, there is therefore now no condemnation. So does the house of your soul echo with that mighty cry of God or are you still making room for other voices? You're weak, you're a failure, you're worthless, you're a disappointment. Oh, listen to the voice of your God on this day who for Christ's sake speaks a powerful truth. And that brings us to the third part. How does God break sin's power? Sending his own son, condemning sin in the flesh, and now fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in us. This is staggering, but would you look at this with me? Verse 4 says something that is quite uh, life-changing for us. It's the thing that God's law has required of us from day one, but it's the thing we could never deliver. You say, what are the righteous requirements of the law? I think Jesus' own words summarize it and simplify it best. In Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, a lawyer comes to him to test him, uh, Matthew says. It's always interesting. You, you, You always have those people in the world who think they know more than the next guy. And it's particularly comical when it's the son of God, right? who has a really good track record at this point of not being snared or trapped uh, or caught. But this lawyer must think he's got something on Jesus. So he comes to test him and he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the conversation ended. But it summarizes for us the righteous requirements of the law. And if we're honest, even we on our best days look at that and go, but I don't love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. Coming up short again. It sounds like Romans 3, doesn't it? Exactly. And you know what? Even on my best days, I don't love other people as I love myself. I have moments where it might be pretty good and acceptable to God, but really... Have any of you lived a 24-hour period where you were just a model of Christ-like love to everybody you interacted with? I doubt it. But the righteous requirement is still there. 
But here's the glory of the gospel, that by the spirit of life who makes his dwelling in us, he doesn't just come alongside you and give you gentle nudges and encouragements and you know, whisper you know, uh, uh, comforting thoughts to you, but he actually takes up residence in you in this body of death, th- this life that we're living that sometimes feels so schizophrenic as we try to follow Jesus, but the spirit comes in and takes, takes up residence and he begins to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law in us. And that gives me such hope, and I I trust it gives you hope on this day, too. He doesn't say that he perfectly does it every day, but he is progressively and and intentionally and unfailingly producing this kind of obedience in us. That's part of the reason that I think it is true, as one author notes, that Paul does not say, we fulfill the law's righteous requirements, but that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And ultimately, any change or transformation in us is traced back to the, to the fact, we talked about this before, but I'm, I, I feel like I need to reach back and say it, at least this much. Remember that part of justification, that work of justification is that God declares us to be perfectly righteous. We've been talking about that. So you have the perfect righteousness of Christ on, on your record, and, and now we're trying to live in a way that, that matches that. There's a great exchange that is worked and accomplished in the gospel. Another commentator who's been a great blessing to me writes, God not only provides in Christ the full completion of the law's demands for the believer, but he also sends the spirit into the hearts of believers to empower a new obedience to his demands. So Christ takes our sin and bears the condemnation so that all guilt and shame are removed and God stands now and says no condemnation. Christ fulfills the righteous requirements of the law and gives us the full benefit of that record. So God, as we've read in previous chapters, stands over us and says, you're fully justified. There's justification. And now through the presence of the spirit of life in us, he begins to fulfill the righteous righteous requirements of the laws in us. And that really is the beginning of the sanctification. And this is God's answer to the cry, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ the Son by the presence of God the Holy Spirit. So it is proper for us not only to believe in the Trinity but to praise him with our hymns and our prayers and our life of service. So we come full circle in one sense and I I want to bring you back to this question, who has the final word in your conscience today? Are you living under the dark, oppressive weight of guilt and shame? Sometimes people even say things like this, I know God would forgive me, I can't forgive myself. Really? Do you have a higher standard of forgiveness than God himself? Do you really mean that? I don't think that's what we mean, that we have a higher standard than God himself, but I want you to think through the implications. I think that's a good indicator that you're actually not willing to receive God's saving declaration over your life. Because if he can stand over a sinner and say no condemnation and declare full liberation because of his work of justification, then it's not that you can't forgive yourself, it's actually that you won't fully receive his declaration and it may be the indicator that you are choosing to remain under that guilt and shame and today God is saying step out of it come to me and let his gospel word be the final word would you bow your heads with me please
as we enter a, a few minutes of, of prayer and personal reflection. Can you answer that definitively? What's, what is the final word? Who has it? There's only one word that saves and rescues. It's the gospel word. A word that reminds us God really is for us because of what Jesus has done. A word of power and sincerity reminding you that God does not intend for you to remain in your guilt, in your shame, in your fear, in your doubt. Will you believe it today? Will you receive it? Will you thank him for it? And go out from this place and live under this mighty word because that's what he wants. My friend, if you are here this morning saying, this is intriguing and I, I sense God speaking to me, that's a little surprising perhaps, but you say, I, I, I really see some things here, but I have some questions and I would like to talk a little more. It would be such an honor to meet with you and talk further. Others here would be honored and, and thrilled in the same way to have a conversation with you and share more of God's word with you. And if you're here this morning saying, I would like to talk with someone, could we arrange that? Would you just lift your hand? Nobody's looking around and I'm not gonna call you out, but I'm gonna make a little mental note and, and we'll chat right after the service and find a time that we can meet. But if you are saying, yes, Danny, I, I wanna talk to somebody, to you or to somebody else who might be available here. Father, how thankful we are for this mighty word. And there are some here who have been in the prison house of shame and guilt far too long. And let this be the day where you liberate and free and rescue and save. How thankful we are that you are the God of salvation. And we pray now that you would seal to our hearts your word of truth and that you would bring great joy as we believe it and rest in it, as we live it and obey it. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.